Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Eli Cohen, founder and CEO of sales enablement leader, Saleshood. Today, we'll be covering three main topics. First, the story behind Eli founding Saleshood. Second, the evolution of sales enablement as a profession and as a function, both a look back, but more importantly, a look forward. And what metrics should sales enablement leaders track and present to highlight the business impact and return on investment of a sales enablement function. Eli, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics Measure Up podcast. Ray, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm in San Francisco and CEO, co-founder of Saleshood. And, you know, it's been an amazing journey. I'm from Toronto originally and moved to San Francisco uh, after I finished my business degree and had a couple jobs and really loved the internet and wanted to get as close as I could to the hub of where I thought the internet action was happening and was a product manager at a startup and a product manager over at Oracle and then Salesforce, led products over at Salesforce. And then got promoted to vice president of sales enablement by Mark Benioff, and then left and founded Saleshood. So that's my journey. And here I am. Great to be here. Well, let's start with a little backstory to that transition from a product manager. Great training being an Oracle. And I believe you were responsible for the partner relationship management product there. And then you did the same at Salesforce. How did you decide to make that transition from product management career path to sales enablement and sales productivity? Yeah, no, it's a great question, right? I grew up in Toronto and having grown up in Toronto, my dad had a, a retail furniture store. So I learned sales when I was very, very young. I had the best coach. My dad, he coached me, he taught me, and I love technology. So once I kind of got my hands on tech and realized that I love building and creating and working with customers, you know, I really love product management, but I was a unique product manager. I was a product manager that loved to sell. You know, the sales teams love bringing me on sales calls. I love being able to be working with customers, hearing their requirements and did it at Allegis, did it at Oracle, you know, and when I was at Salesforce, we launched the partner portal, partner relationship management. And I think when Benioff pulled me up on stage about 18 months after we rolled out the product and recognized my team and I for rolling out an amazing product, he said, what made PRM, the partner relationship management offering, what made it successful was how Eli and his team trained, coached, enabled our global sales organization. And therefore, we're going to promote him to VP of sales enablement. And so I don't know, I give my dad some credit and just say he taught me how to sell. And I've just always had coaching, been a key part of what I do all the time. Well, interesting. Salesforce, what a great place to kind of start your sales productivity and sales enablement career journey. But I was talking to the former CEO of Commerce Cloud at Salesforce, Mike Micucci, last week on the podcast. And he was talking about the relentless focus on productivity metrics, especially ARR growth at Salesforce. Can I ask, when you were leading sales productivity at Salesforce, how were you measured as far as the business impact you were creating? 
I love it. So being the head of enablement at salesforce.com during the hyper growth years was incredible. You know, getting to work very closely with Mark Benioff, with the leadership team, just like you said, we were maniacally focused on impact. And so just think about what the world was like back in 2006, 2007, 2008. You know, Salesforce had just gone public. Salesforce had, you know, a very bright future, but it wasn't predestined that the company was going to be successful. And so we were still reporting subscribers. We were looking at revenue lifts, you know, quarter after quarter as we're reporting to the street. And what we knew was the following. We knew if we could hire salespeople and if those salespeople could get productive faster, meaning they could start closing deals faster because it was a SaaS business, because we were tracking monthly recurring revenue, we knew that if we could get salespeople ramped faster, then we knew we could report to the street faster as well. So there was a direct correlation between the time to ramp and time to revenue that we were tracking at the rep level, at the team level, at the country level in those early days to actual stock performance at the company level. And that's why Mark Benioff was really focused on those core metrics. We were looking on a continual basis how we could shave off days and weeks to the new hire onboarding productivity numbers. And so we instituted programs like 30, 60, 90 because we wanted to get our sellers. So time to productivity. And we we're looking at time to first deal, time to second deal. We're looking at time till they would hit productivity, which would mean the first month that they're contributing to quota. And then how long would it take the sellers to actually hit quota? That was all onboarding. And then the other metrics, Ray, that we looked at very closely was win rates. We were always looking for ways to win more deals because we thought we should win every deal. And so we were always pushing up the win rates on a team by team basis and measuring the win rates. And then some of the other traditional ones as well, we looked at average deal size and we looked at sales cycle time as well. That's time to revenue, but we were tracking these numbers. We were tracking them and we were continuously rolling out new programs to just provide even like small lifts and improvements had a big, big impact, right? Well, those are some great metrics. There was one that you didn't talk about, and I want to kind of double click down on that. Okay. And that is sales productivity. What I mean by sales productivity is, you know, what percent of the sales force actually hits quota? Then what's the overall sales organization performance against the organization quota? And over the last five to seven years, Eli, you know, yep. we used to be able to predictably say that you'd have 70 to 80 percent overall sales productivity. 70 or 80 percent of people would hit their quota. But today, because of all the noise and all the saturation of the market, my latest research said only 54% of B2B sales professionals in the SaaS and cloud industry attained quota in 2020. How does that impact how you measure the return on sales enablement? I look today, I look very closely and we measure very closely and we look and help our customers correlate the attainment data and the distribution of attainment of their sales teams, which is, I think, how you're describing sales productivity. And so you're saying 54%, right? 54% uh, I, in 2020. I see a range. When companies come to us, they're usually in the high 30s, mid to high 30s. I think 54% is great. I think companies shoot for that and they try to shoot for higher. Now, back to your question, you asked, you know, did we look at that back at Salesforce? It's such an interesting question because you're right. I didn't say those, right? What did I say? I said time to ramp, time to productivity. I said time to first deal, time to second deal. I said win rates. I said ASP. You know what happened back then was we had a very, very high number of people hitting quota. And I think, you know, I'll take some of the credit. Like we had a great enablement program and a great team. That's kind of half joking, but kind of serious. We had a great program. We were also in a market 
that people wanted CRM and their sales force was investing a ton in marketing and we were hiring like crazy, but we had a lot of people going to club every year and more people went to club and club equals a proverbial sales productivity metric. It's the ultimate measure, right? Are you going to go to club? You're going to go to Hawaii? Are you going to sit on the beach, drinking a pina colada, celebrating success with your team? And I think we did look at those numbers, but we were looking at the leading indicator numbers first because we knew, listen, if we hired an SMB rep and if they weren't closing deals in their first 30 to 45 days, we would go in and there was a get help program for them or there was, hey, it's not working out, right? And we knew mid-market. So those early indicators in terms of time to first deal, time to second deal and time to the first month that they're hitting quota, if people could get through those hoops, they're invariably going to be in the 80, 90% at least. Like if you were doing 80% of quota at Salesforce, I know this sounds crazy. I know it's not like that today, right? But back then in 2009, 2010, 2011, if you were doing 70 to 80% of quota, you weren't doing well, right? Anything below 100% was like, what's going on? Why aren't you making your number? Very different than today, right? Where people are like 50 points and that's oh, a good number. Totally agree. And by the way, so today when you walk into a new client, do you do some level of assessment or benchmarking on both the leading indicators and the trailing indicators? And then after six or 12 months of putting in a best-in-class sales enablement program and infrastructure, look at those metrics again to see how they've improved? Yeah, we'll do an assessment. We'll baseline. We'll benchmark to see how they're doing. And we'll look across all those metrics I talked about. Their onboarding metrics around time to first, time to second, and then overall kind of time to productivity across their segments. We will look at attainment. That's one of the very first questions we ask. Like folks, you know, we'll ask, how are your teams doing? How are you doing in terms of overall attainment? And then more importantly, Ray, we'll look at the distribution of attainment across teams, look for some patterns around which managers are doing well, which ones are not. And then we look at win rates. And then we ask the company and we say, where do you want to improve the most? Where do you see the biggest lift that you could potentially get in the next 12 to 18 months? And then we'll kind of get them to configure and to embrace and deploy the platform to solve those specific revenue problems. Great. Let's zoom out a little bit, Eli, because we're talking a lot about sales enablement. Yep. But I'm seeing a move to gain better alignment of the marketing, the sales, and the customer success team to the customer buying journey. We're seeing this evolution of the chief revenue officer role, also revenue operations to integrate the operations functions across those three. Do you think sales enablement in the future will evolve and quite frankly, become revenue enablement as the organization structure changes? Yeah, or maybe go to market enablement, Ray. I think yep. that's an interesting one, GTM enablement. You know, we pioneered sales enablement at Salesforce. I founded SalesHood as a purpose-built, all-in-one sales enablement platform company. And then when I wrote my second book, Enablement Mastery, notice I didn't call it sales enablement mastery. I called it enablement mastery because it's TBD. I think the trend that we're seeing is the following. Many of our customers, the companies that have been working with us, like the Ring Centrals, for example, we've been working with Ring Central for many years. If you go look at their stock, go look at their business outcomes, go look at the performance of that company, it's off the charts. They've leaned into sales enablement, enablement as a lever of growth company-wide just like we did at Salesforce. And so when we work with companies, we look for leaders that are as forward thinking about their go-to-market and really prioritize enablement. And so Ring Central went from sales enablement 
to revenue enablement, right? And so Siobhan Thatcher leading that. And then they've just expanded to company-wide enablement. So they're now looking at enablement as a company-wide initiative. But many organizations today, I think sales enablement is where they can start applying some of the principles of modern learning, modern coaching, modern selling with micro-learning, micro-coaching, micro-assessments, peer-to-peer, right? Like those are cultural shifts. Those are change management behaviors that need to happen at an organizational level to get sales and marketing aligned, to get success aligned. And so if sales can lead the way and you can see lifts in productivity, and then all of a sudden, you know, the success teams and the services teams go, wait a minute, we want some of that. And then you add the partner teams. So absolutely, I think how it shakes out, whether it's go-to-market enablement or revenue enablement or enablement management, you know, we'll see. But I'm, I'm really pleased to see companies and CEOs and CROs and chief people officers now using enablement in their conversations, in their talk tracks, as they're explaining how they're going to see lifts in behavior. Like Benioff himself, you know, he did a talk on NBC, three-minute video, where he said, number one priority right now for companies, for CEOs, is how are they enabling their people? And that's enabling their people, right? Everyone, Ray. So we'll see. What do you think, Ray? Thank you for throwing that back at me. So once again, what I do all day long is look at benchmarks and metrics specific to the SaaS and cloud industry. So here's something that stimulated my thought about revenue enablement, customer success. So number one, net dollar retention, which measures the retention and growth of your existing customer base has become the number one enterprise value to revenue impacting multiple. Where now, if you don't have 110 to 120% net dollar retention, you're not going to have the same EV to revenue multiple. Number two, customer success is the front kind of customer engagement engine to not only retention, but identifying and maybe even being responsible for cross-sell and upsell opportunities. And third, customer success is now on average about 10 to 12% as an expense to revenue. And five years ago, it was 1% to 2%. So I believe that if we don't start doing a much better job of enabling customer success managers to be more than glorified kind of customer support and relationship managers, that we're going to see a reduction in performance. So I think CS is the next big enablement opportunity. What do you think about that, Eli? As a CEO of a SaaS company and have grown up at Salesforce and running a SaaS company now, I can completely appreciate the value of net retention and, you know, improving net retention and improving gross churn, right? And, and ensuring gross retention is as high as possible. And those are revenue conversations that need to happen in the context of the health of a company. And enabling a CSM requires a different playbook than enabling a AE. You can't just do a one-size-fits-all approach. And so part of what's happening in the industry, we see this all the time, right? So I love your question. When Salesforce gets rolled out, sometimes, you know, and and our customers, they can brand the experience or they kind of rebrand it and it's kind of comes, it's called whatever hood you want, right? But sometimes when it's rolled out as solely sales enablement, you might get a little bit of pushback from the CS folks. Oh, I'm not a salesperson. And I know sales, sales isn't for me because we do things very differently. And so part of our change management process at the beginning, when we work with companies and our implementations is, okay, let's figure out where your revenue drivers. So I think we're building the case together, Ray, that revenue enablement feels like kind of where this is evolving to. And because, you know, I was on the call last week with the company 
and just to kind of give you an example, and their number one issue is they've got too many short-term contracts, tens of millions of dollars in short-term contracts. And what was interesting was, and they didn't really have an enablement plan to convert those contracts into long-term agreements, right? So, you know, you can imagine what could potentially happen, but there's their account managers and their CSMs that were focused on converting that. So they're super interested in revenue retention and revenue enablement. And the entire conversation, we were using language like that versus kind of the traditional sales enablement language. And I think the analysts, though, I don't know if you're tracking what Gartner and Forrester are saying and Aragon, I think they're still using sales enablement. And I think they're getting intrigued by the word revenue. And, and you've got the likes of Avizos and Clary's and Gongs who are kind of using language like revenue acceleration. So I think we'll see how it shakes out. But I think revenue enablement, especially if you're talking to a CRO, is a broader conversation and will impact more metrics that matter just to kind of use some of the language here with your amazing podcast. Well, it's interesting, Eli. So I initially came up with the concept of RevOps Squared in 2008, and it was all about revenue operations to align and integrate marketing, sales, and customer success. And quite frankly, back then, it was more customer service and professional services. And it was a concept way ahead of its time. So maybe revenue enablement is still two, three years away but I truly believe in today's land and expand customer acquisition and growth model that revenue enablement is going to become critical. And I'd like to get your feedback on this also. So classically, especially in B2B enterprise sales, it was let's try to close the largest deal possible. Let's get that seven-figure deal. But in today's evolution of product-led growth plus usage-based pricing, I believe enterprise sales professionals are going to have to develop better relationship management and expansion identification skills. So do you agree that maybe those expansion skills is another leg on the revenue enablement stool that we got to help sales professionals develop? Well, listen, for sure, right? When we talk about the professionalism and the skills required of our sales professionals and our success professionals that together are responsible for revenue, I think curiosity is such an important skill set. And, you know, we have Selling Through Curiosity as a program that we offer to our customers and companies around the world, which is even now increasingly more important because you need to be able to ask open and layering questions, build relationships is so critical because you need to really understand the priorities. You really need to understand the problems. You really need to understand the processes of companies. So that way you can, as a revenue professional, whether you're success or whether you're sales, as a professional adding value to that company, if you don't really understand what they're doing, you're not going to be able to really uh, help them achieve their revenue goals. And that's why we're doing what we're doing as an organization and as an industry. So I think it's super interesting. Relationship building skills, core discovery skills, the ability to present value in the context of customers' language. And then, yeah, that in itself will lead to expansion. Like, listen, CSMs, customer success folks, I think, and let me hear your thoughts. Traditionally, they've been focused on adoption. And I think the question is, and this is an interesting question, are they evolving to also be revenue focused or are we going to expand the scope of the AE to be focused on retention and expansion revenue? I'm not sure how that's going to shake out yet. What do you think? I'm not either. Or there's a third option, and that is... We develop a new role, kind of that account management role that we saw 25 years ago in enterprise software that was responsible for identifying different divisions or user groups. And I think that would be a travesty, in my opinion, because you just have a third person the client needs to know and interact with. So my belief is, number one, 
Customer success needs to be trained and enabled better to identify upsell and cross-sell opportunities. And then the account executive needs to have, maybe it's up to 50% of their compensation and quota is on existing customer growth. But then that gets into that whole discussion. Do you turn a hunter into a farmer, right, Eli? Right, right. Absolutely. I think we're seeing these three flavors being played out in so many different ways. Like I can tell you, right, we've got a hundred customers and their models and their segmentation and how they're doing capacity planning and how they're driving revenue. It's almost different in each company. And some have hunter farmers, some have AEs, AMs. It's wild. I think this is super interesting. I love where this conversation has gone. Yeah, Eli, I'm, and I like to kind of do thought-provoking comments sometimes. So I had about 20 clients last year that were working on the key performance indicators and metrics kind of structure they deployed. And one of my more hot takes and outlandish things is I said, you should take 10% of your sales compensation budget and allocate it to net dollar retention, where they have a small piece of their compensation on number one, are the customers you're closing being retained over one, two, three years? And if you do have a multi-product or a solution that allows for cross-sales and upsells, are they buying more from you over time? What do you think of that? Yeah, listen, I would love to see creative ways to reward net retention growth and expansion growth because that's the ultimate multiplier in SaaS, right? You've got customers, they are doing long-term contracts, but the real multiplier is they have organic growth. I think smart AEs and CSMs that are building those relationships and are being curious and are presenting additional alternatives to their existing stack and saying, hey, we can solve this problem for you, that problem for you. The floodgates, so it happens to us here, right? Like we'll, we'll sign up a company and they'll start using sales. So they'll have a core goal that they want to achieve. And then they start using it. They realize, wow, we can use it in this department. We can use it here. We can use it here. And we love that. And I think that's the promise of SaaS, right? It's a land and expand. And you got to get everybody aligned on the same metrics. But there's also the economics is interesting. I think there's the, you want to pay everyone, but you got to make sure you're doing the right math and that you're still making money as a business. Well, if that makes sense. Yeah, in fact... You just said something that I'm going to pivot a little bit in this conversation. You talked about a lot of the sales or revenue leading indicators, the time to productivity, first deal, second deal, the average contract value, sell cycle length. There's a couple other metrics that every SaaS investor, whether that's private or public, use to value a SaaS company. And those are CAC payback period, which yep. says how, you know, all the sales and marketing investment, how long does it take to earn that back on a gross margin adjusted basis? And then there's the CAC ratio or the flip side of that, the SaaS magic number. Do you think enablement should be at least aligned to those two company level performance metrics, Eli? Maybe long-term. I think I like to see enablement folks truly understand the core metrics that I described at the beginning. And I think, you know, we're, we're investing a lot to educate and elevate the industry. We're investing a lot to educate and elevate the profession. And I think there's still, fear is the wrong word, but I think rolling up your sleeves, getting more familiar with the data, understanding the metrics and tying an enablement leader's bonus and their compensation to core metrics like those, I think that's step one. And if we can just get that alignment initially, so there's complete alignment between enablement folks and ops and then the CRO, that would be great. I think aligning to CAC is still early for that. So we're not quite there yet. Got you. Let's walk before we jog and run, huh? Right. Just a little bit. So here's a question I've been dying to ask you. 
So okay. when I think about sales enablement or revenue enablement, I think about we're enabling that individual contributor, right? Whether it's an AE inside, outside, maybe even an SCR. But we recently conducted some research on sales leadership skill development opportunities from both the CEO and CFO perspective, as well as from the salesperson perspective. And coaching was one of the top three skill development areas or opportunities that we found. Do you think best-in-class sales enablement functions also do any level of sales management enablement and training? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the first use cases of our the sales platform, when we mapped out the vision and we started building it out in the early, early days, we went after sales manager enablement first. Right. We created a huddle and we enabled automation around distributing training and coaching to managers so they can ultimately manage their teams. It's a really hard problem. I think, you know, I was fortunate at Salesforce. We had amazing leadership and the leadership were very open to taking the feedback and suggestions when we'd roll out playbooks, we roll out new product training. They were pretty much open arms saying, give it to us. We're ready to learn. We're ready to be enabled and we're going to be a direct extension of the enablement team. That was what I came from, right? And then when I entered the world and started sales, I realized that, you know, not all frontline managers are super comfortable doing the coaching, doing the one-on-one coaching, doing the team coaching, because a lot of them are new managers. A lot of them are doing this for the first time. And so I think this is an underserved part of the enablement world. I think, yes, we need to enable our, our reps and our CSMs and our SDRs, but we need to do an even better job enabling the frontline managers and then the second line managers. And we got to give them the tools. We got to give them the resources. We got to give them the coaching. We got to give them most importantly the space where they can collaborate with other managers to talk about what's working, what's not working. And we've got programs for that. And it's part of our go-to-market where we enable frontline managers as well with our system and with our technology. But great question. What are you seeing? Oh, Eli, I, I think this is one of the biggest issues in the SaaS and cloud industry, because we went from five to 10 to now almost 40,000 SaaS and cloud companies. We take our top performers, whether that's in a account executive role or in a customer success role, and we promote them and we give them almost no professional management or coaching training. And then after a year, year and a half, we're like, well, you're not very good at management. And it's like, no, it was a really good IC and you didn't invest in me to make me a good leader. So I think we got to do a better job there, Eli. I really do. Yeah. I'll just give you some examples, right? So frontline manager enablement, like what does it really mean? It means that you need to create a program that looks at all the skills that you need your frontline managers to have coaching. They need to be able to do it individually with teams. They need to be better at recruiting. They need to be better at interviewing. They need to be better at running forecast calls, pipeline calls. They need to be better at having tough conversations. They need to be able to do territory reviews, right? Think of all, like those are skills, right? They need to be better listeners. They need to be empathetic. Like there is a whole bunch of soft and hard skills we got to get our frontline managers to do. And then you got to get your managers. And then some of the things that we can do to enable our managers is guide them, right? We can't just give them a playbook and say, okay, here you go. Here's a PDF, go read it. And you'll be a great manager. We got to actually roll up our sleeves as enablement leaders. And we got to sit with them and we got to coach them and say, okay, here's a template for doing one-on-ones in a very consistent, repeatable way. Let's do one together. Let me give you a one-on-one feedback or why don't you record the next one-on-one you have and I can give you feedback on it. And you can see how for all the processes for territory planning, for deal reviews, you give them the templates and then you give them some guides, and then the enablement folks should be providing them and doing ride-alongs with the managers so that way they can get that feedback. And by the way, as much as they want, right? I think you make that available to them. And we've seen dramatic lifts in the attainment 
at the team level when managers take the time and they take the coaching appropriately so they can be better at having those one-on-one team reviews, deal reviews. And it's a lift. It's a big, big change management lift, but the payout is there if you can get it right. In fact, one of my out-of-the-box ideas is sales managers, they spend a lot of their time with administration, you know, meetings, cross-functional meetings, et cetera. Maybe having a dedicated coach or coaches that are even sitting in sales enablement, that this is my conversation feedback coach. And she or he, they're just experts at listening to conversations, providing feedback. Maybe that needs to be a specialist role the same way we have hitting coaches or pitching coaches in baseball. What do you think of that idea? That's a great idea. And some of it can be automated as well, right? I think I love the idea. It's great. I imagine, let's kind of just kind of foreshadow a little bit. You know, you got Uber for a lot of different capacities today. We have Uber for driving. We have Uber for food delivery. I envision as the revenue ops and the revenue enablement and the sales enablement profession matures, there's going to be an ecosystem that's going to be created. And it's going to be around a marketplace of folks who are experts in this kind of coaching, manager coaching, rep coaching, deal coaching, pitch coaching. Because, you know, yes, you can automate it and you can get like little summaries, basically, but real coaching. And I think there's so many super talented sales ops, sales managers that want to get out of the grind and they're going to be able to provide the services from home, do kind of asynchronous and synchronous coaching through a system like Saleshood. I think this is going to be an explosive area in the years to come. And I love it. I think anyone that is on the back half of their career that wants to stay engaged, I would start thinking about how they can do coaching and build their persona as a coaching expert. We're going to build that marketplace eventually. I love the idea. And Ray, we did do some automation, right? I think just the basics of like providing a library of meetings in a box for frontline managers and then providing some basic automation around the scheduling, the reminders to the reps so that way the managers don't have to chase down activity participation and providing kind of that framework. It's something that we're doing with integrations to Salesforce and things like that. I think we're going to see more and more thoughtful systems and tools and resources for frontline managers so they can run their business better. And I think we're just at the beginning of this whole space. From your lips to God's ear. Hey, you know, I could <laughs> talk to you all day long, but we're going to have to wrap up here. So I guess the first question I'd ask before we wrap up for our listening audience is, is there any topic about sales enablement that we didn't hit on that you think would be really valuable for our audience to understand and hear? I think the one thing that we didn't talk about directly is the idea of mentorship. And so I think mentorship will come in a lot of different flavors. I think we're going to want to create forums for salespeople to be mentored between each other. There'll be salesperson mentorship. There'll be sales manager mentorship and peer coaching. And then similarly, in the enablement and at the sales ops level, at the leadership level, kind of mentorship. I think we're going to see a big push for mentorship as we come out of the pandemic, as we look for virtual collaboration. Folks are kind of zoomed out, but folks still want to establish connections. People have loved connecting with people around the world in this new world that we're in now. And so I think a great forum and mechanism for the progression and the evolution of the industry is going to be through mentorship. And we used to do this a ton at Salesforce. We're doing it informally right now. I think more formalized mentorship networks within companies and company to company is something that I'd love to talk more about on another one of your shows in the future. 
uh, Eli, you're singing my songs. I was fortunate. I grew up my first 10 years after undergrad at GE, and I'm an engineer by schooling. And the first year that I joined GE, they put me through a year-long program, which was called the Salesforce Development Program, which was taking technical people and teaching you the art and science of sales. And I had a mentor with me that whole year. Then I was, as I was fortunate enough to become part of their executive management development program, they also assigned me a mentor. So it was very formal. And I'll tell you, that mentorship program, I give 80, 90% of the credit to the things I learned and the success I've had to that program. Right. So I'm with you. Yeah, good stuff. So, hey, let's um, wrap up with getting to know Eli a little bit better. Which okay. CEO or company do you think is a must follow in 2021? Wow, there's so many. I think we talked about Benioff, but let's talk about Mark Benioff as a CEO, as a leader, as a visionary. If you're not following Mark on Twitter, he's very prolific. And I followed him from the very beginning of Twitter. And I learned from Mark every day. And he's teaching me right now how to lead a company in a post-COVID world. And it's incredible. So I think I would be very interested to see kind of Mark's next step, right? He's got a number of potential CEO candidates that he's grooming inside of Salesforce. What's Mark going to do next? And I love listening and watching Mark every time he shares anything on diversity, inclusion, what's happening today in this crazy pandemic world, homelessness, community, and what an amazing CEO. And I just want to give him appropriate recognition and kudos. So uh, that's someone that if you're not following Mark and tracking him, you got to do it. Yeah. And when he first introduced the concept of stakeholder capital, I'm like, I like Mark even more than I did just as a business person. Which tool, not your own, that you think every SaaS company should be using? You know, I'm a big believer in connecting the dots, right? And so connecting the dots, for me, it means in a prospecting relationship building setting, being able to have a glimpse into who you're selling to, who your customers are, who are they connected with. And so for me, like if you are a professional seller and you are not using LinkedIn to the fullest, I think you're missing an opportunity to really show up to your meetings, doing your research. And so I'm going to do two tools. I think tool number one is absolutely LinkedIn. And I probably, obviously I use mine a lot, but I use LinkedIn a ton, a ton, just to see shared connections. Even now, LinkedIn added a feature for video messaging inside LinkedIn. It's very compelling. I use LinkedIn as a CEO to amplify my voice with content. I share posts on a regular basis. So that's, that's a tool that I depend on every day for my business. And then just Ray, if I can, Another tool set that is critical for my success and I think critical to the success of sellers today is, listen, Google, right? And so for me, Google Drive, Google Slides, and the ability that I can collaborate with prospects and customers using Slides and Google Docs, it wins. And I, I'm sure that Microsoft and Salesforce will have their own versions, but those are the two that I really depend on regularly to run my business and engage with people that I work with and collaborate with on a regular basis. Those are good ones. I think LinkedIn Sales Navigator is probably yep. one of the most underused kind of high value tools I've seen. I, it's it's amazing. Any sales organization like, doesn't know how to use it needs to. It's crazy, right? Think about it. Like, how do you show up to a meeting and not use their expanded search capabilities to look at the broader network of people that you're connected with? It's it's a shame. It's a missed opportunity. Totally agree. Sure. Last question, Eli. You're talking to someone who's just ready to graduate from undergrad, or maybe they've got three or six months into their first job. What advice would you give them who wants to be the next great SaaS or cloud founder like Eli Cohen? Oh my God. Well, thank you for the compliment, Ray. You're too kind. I think uh, don't be afraid to reach out 
to founders, CEOs, leaders in the industry that you want to learn from. And don't be afraid to reach out and ask for their time. Right? I get pinged a lot. And when someone sends me a personalized note, I watched this, I read this, I read that, and they're highlighting something that shows they've done some sincere interest and they've got real interest in learning. I will take those meetings all the time. So if you're listening to this right now and you do want to spend some time with me, send me a personal note. I love meeting new people, meeting young minds early in their career, because I have a lot of lessons that I can share. And so it does go back to that mentorship, but find the people that you want to learn from and don't be afraid to reach out, but just make it sincere, authentic, the outreach and make it personalized. That is great advice. And I think for those early career professionals to understand that people like Eli and myself that are on their second half of their career journey, giving back and helping the early career professionals, that's one of the biggest kind of paybacks we can have is by paying it forward. So Eli, yeah. thanks so much for being a guest on the Metrics of Major at Podcast. To our listening audience, if you're enjoying our guest and the topics we discuss on the Metrics of Major at Podcast, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe to our podcast. Please provide a comment and rate us because that way other people in industry can benefit from our great guests and the content they're providing. Thank you so much, Eli. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.